0: Hi, you're listening to a sermon from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. We're so glad you're listening. If you'd like more information, you can visit us online at oakhills.org or phone us at
1: 916-983-0181. By the way, I, uh, last, about two weeks ago or three weeks ago, I realized that for about 15 years... I had been sitting over here before the services and during the worship time. And I decided to move and relocate over there. And I've come to a very fast conclusion about that. If you're bored, if you want to be corrupted in some way, move from here over to there. I don't know why. There's just a vibe over there. That's yeah, that's the vibe. That's it. Yes. So it's just an observation. Do with it what you want. We have an outside firm that handles our various computer issues that we have as a church and as a staff. And there was a guy from the company that deals with that stuff here this week, and he was fixing some things on our computers. And when he finished mine, I made the big mistake of asking him a question. And he did this really good job of explaining what he had done to deal with my computer and the problems that I had. But as he was talking... I could quite literally feel my eyes glazing over, and I was just cycling rapidly into this black hole of confusion. I kept nodding my head, and I would hear myself saying, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh, but I had zero idea what the guy was actually talking about. And I think sometimes it's like this with the Bible. Sometimes it's like this with the Christian experience in general. It's this whole new world where there is its own language and its own music. There are these practices that are relatively unfamiliar. There's a whole subculture, and it can be kind of confusing, and it can be hard to understand. One of the things we value at Oak Hills, and I think we at least try to prioritize, is the why that is behind the what and the how. So we value kind of digging into things and trying to go down as far as we can underneath the surface of things and challenging ourselves to think about more than just the pragmatics of what works and what doesn't work. For as much as we might like it to be and for much as, as much as we might think it is, at least in my view, Christianity is not simple. Especially in today's culture. We might want it to be simple, we might want to reduce it, to a few things we believe and a few things we do. But in my mind, Christianity is far from simple, especially in today's world. So it is good to think carefully about it, to think about the implications of what we read in the Bible, to think about the implications of life in God's kingdom. It's good to do this. It's good to dig deep. But sometimes we focus too much, perhaps, on the complexities. At least I know that I do. And we want to set that aside uh, for the most part over the next seven weeks in this series that we're calling Questions God Asks. For these weeks, we want to simply talk about a few of the questions God asks people in the Bible. It's a very kind of somewhat strange and fascinating phenomena, God asking human beings questions. And all of these questions he asks are short, relatively simple, straightforward, and to the point. So let's begin by talking about a preference for answers. It is impossible to be an authentic person who thinks about the chaos happening all the time in this world or feels what is happening in this world without at least occasionally stumbling upon a tough question for which there does not seem to be an easy answer. Things happen in the world that are just really difficult to understand. So we ask these tough, unanswerable questions like, why Sri Lanka, God? Why cancer? Or if you read about this, I believe it was yesterday, why another shooting in a religious site at a Jewish synagogue in Southern California? When the world seems to make little sense, and more and more it seems to make less and less sense, we ask God hard to answer questions. And this is a good thing. It's good that we do this. And some of us are able to live in the tension of these hard, often unanswerable questions. For some of us, it is enough to feel the freedom to be able to say, God, why? But it seems to me the more typical situation is to come up with quick answers to the difficulties of life. Because many of us, at least, like answers. Some of us really like answers. In fact, some of us need answers. We need answers so much, we'd rather have incomplete or even wrong answers than live in the tension of the hard questions. And we all know people like this. Could be a wiring thing, could be an upbringing thing, who knows what causes it all. Many of us in this room are like this. Christians are actually prone to this kind of answer-seeking. Answers give us a sense that the world works. They give us a sense that God is actually in charge And so 2 plus 2 equals 4. And again, some of us are wired for this. We like clear explanations. We want answers. We want to solve the puzzle of the world. And we actually need to solve the puzzle of the world in order to feel safe. We don't like uncertainty. We don't like loose ends. We don't like questions we can't answer. So we find an answer or we create an answer because having an answer is more important to us than having a good, sound, logical, or biblical answer. Now, there's no doubt God provides us with answers to many of our questions. I want to make sure to say that. God does not leave us adrift, if you will, out to sea with no idea what direction to go. The Bible clearly establishes who God is and what life with Him and in Him is about. He guides us through the Bible, through the Scripture, as we engage it, as we enter into it, as we encounter it. He guides us through His truth. In addition, last Sunday we celebrated the truth that Jesus is risen from the dead. And the risen Jesus interacts with us through His Holy Spirit. He speaks to us. He guides us along through the course of life. He leads us in His ways. So make sure to say this there are some answers for sure to be found. But one of the ways God guides us is through the questions he asks us. And for seven weeks, we're going to consider uh, a few of the personal questions he asks us. Not philosophical questions. Not big Monty Python meaning of life questions up here. His questions rather to us. Personal questions. God teaches us through the questions he asks us. And I don't want to press on this too hard and try to compel you too much, but this really is, these next seven weeks, really are an opportunity for each one of us personally and for us as a congregation to step into the personal side of this, to hear these questions being asked to us each personally. He asks us questions to awaken us, to stir in us, to get us thinking and to get us feeling about being human, to to help us enter more fully into the experience of being human. He asks us questions to uh, help us discover ourselves more authentically. It's really important. He asks us questions so that we discover who we actually are and aren't more authentically. He asks us questions so we experience in fresh levels and in new ways his grace and his love. And so he asks us questions, if you will, to invite us further up and further into this relationship with him. So we want to sit in these questions and we want to consider a number of these questions over the coming weeks. And we're only going to look at one each week. And today's question is taken straight out of the passage Manuel read from Genesis chapter 3, where God says to Adam, and by extension to Eve, he simply asks them the question, where are you? Today's scripture, like all the stories we will be considering over the next few weeks, are giant, if you will, floor-to-ceiling windows through which we can see who God is and what life in his kingdom is actually like. These stories, in other words, flesh out in pretty specific detail what life in the kingdom of the risen Jesus actually looks like and feels like. In our scripture reading, sin happens. Adam and Eve choose to disobey God. And then we are told they hear the sound of God walking in the garden. And get this, for the first time ever, they run from God. And they try to hide, the Bible says, in the trees. And God calls out to Adam and he says, where are you? And from a Christian perspective, this is obviously a turning point in history. This is the moment when God's good world, his world of peace, his world of flourishing, his world of what is known as shalom went sideways. The dam broke and a flood of chaos And turmoil was unleashed in the human soul, and it was unleashed in the cosmos. And this flood, as we all know, continues to flow. From a Christian perspective then, this story we read is the beginning of all of our troubles. So you name the trouble that you're facing, or that your family is facing, or that we are facing as a culture, or a nation, or a world This is the beginning of those troubles. It all started right here in this story we read. Which is one reason why this is a scene that artists throughout the centuries have tried to depict, have tried to recreate this picture of Adam and Eve choosing to go against God and turn away from him. So you can see on the screen, this is a painting done in 1791 by a guy named Benjamin West in the... Painting is about being expelled from the garden. So you just look at this, and some of it you can't see because it, it's it's uh, too dark up there. But this sharp sword of light, you can see it coming down from the top. The angel holding this sharp sword of light has this image of ferociousness and piercing and kind of a threatening sort of a image. If you look right near Adam's feet, the serpent is on the ground. There's, you can't see this, but in the background, there's an eagle attacking a bird, and there's a lion chasing horses, indicative of the broken shalom, the broken harmony. If you look at the second picture, this is this was a drawing for an 1860 German picture Bible by a guy with a great name, Julius Schnorr von Carolsfeld. Sounds like a chocolate factory, but really good. But you can see in this one, this is God coming to Adam and Eve after sin enters the picture. His arms are folded. His robe is folded. There's this light shining around him. His head is down. And they are looking away on the ground. And you can just sort of see the shame in this picture. So let me take a little diversion as we keep thinking about this. Think about a time when a parent texted you and all they said was, where are you? Or when your spouse calls and you answer and you pick up the phone, hello, and all they say is, where are you? How about when your boss texts or emails or calls and says, where are you? It's one of those questions that has this way of stirring up stuff that is embedded in us. The question, in other words, can put us on the defensive. We hear it, or at least some of us do, as an accusation. Or it can feel to some others like an invitation. Huh, someone wants to know where I am because they miss me and they want to be with me. The point is this, and it's an important point for all these questions, but in particular this one. The point is we bring the reality of who we are to a question like this. So, the way we hear this question, where are you, is profoundly shaped by who we are in our inner being. Again, this is crucial. Here's what that means it means the wounds that we carry, the shame we feel, the degree of shame we experience, the confidence with which we live, or the lack of confidence with which we live, our identity. And where it comes from. And much, much more, determine in the moment the way we hear a question like this and the way we will respond to it. Again, this is crucially important. I got an email recently, and the minute I saw the email, my insides started churning. Perhaps you can relate to this. Once I started reading it, what I heard was disappointment. Here's what I heard. Mike, you just weren't good enough. You just weren't enough. If you had been enough, then this is what would have happened. But since you weren't enough, this is what's going to happen. They didn't write those words, but that's what I heard. In fact, the email was well written. The situation was explained. But from the very first word, I was fighting with these voices in my head. And I am confident I was interpreting the email at least somewhat correctly. I'm confident that, yes, I have, in fact, disappointed the person who wrote this. I have not been what they all wanted me to be. But the point is, I brought the reality of my inner world to the reading of this email. And it affected how I heard it. And we do this all the time. You brought the reality of your inner world to the hearing of the Scripture today. You imputed tones into the voice of God. You imputed an attitude. You imputed feelings into the story. And you got those tones and you got the attitude and you got those feelings right out of your own inner life and you just dumped it right into the story and it affected how you heard the truth from God's Word. We do this all the time. And here's the thing I want us to grasp And these are not my words, but they certainly resonate with me. My emotional immaturity will block and stop my growth in spiritual maturity. I mean, if I am emotionally immature in whatever way, that at that point of emotional immaturity, I will block and stop my growth in spiritual maturity. If I'm unwilling to let Jesus down into this level of detail in my inner world, meaning if I'm unwilling to let Jesus down into the level of what instinctively goes off in me when I read a particular kind of email, if I'm not interested in Jesus getting down into me that far, then spiritual growth is simply not possible. If we don't allow him into the details of our inner life that shapes things like how we hear then genuine spiritual growth is really tough, if not impossible. So you may not have the voices in the head kind of a challenge, but we all bring the reality of who we actually are into our relationship with God and into our relationship with other people. So now back to the question, where are you? What do you think was God's tone when he asked the question? Thunderous and disappointing, like we saw in those paintings? Like when our mothers would call our name using both our first and middle name, Michael Charles never meant uh, lunch is served. It meant you're dead. Was God gentle when he said, "Where are you?" Was he invitational? Was "Where are you?" Like, "Where are you? Where'd you go?" Was he mad? Was his face red? Did he have his arms folded? Where are you? Was he sad? Was he calm? How was he? I want to try an exercise. If you have a journal, I'd like you to take it out. If you use the app journal, I'd like you to go on to that. If you want a journal, uh, looks like they're not there anymore. Maybe they're gone. Are they gone? Are you waving at me? or does that mean they're gone? They're gone. Don't do that. That's mean, Lorraine. Anyway, they're, they're, they're gone. So if you could take out your journal, I'd like to try this. And here's what I'd like you to get into this framework as we go through this series. Enough of the head game. We play head games enough. I want to invite us into the experience of this. I want to invite us into the emotion of this, if you will, the feeling behind this. And here's what I'd like to do, give you a minute or two with your journal in hand, whether it's electronic or the actual one you have. Here's what I'd like you to think about. I'd like you to feel the question, where are you? Feel what the question does to you. Just right out of the gate, unedited, uninhibited, where are you? What does it make you feel like? What sorts of things get stirred up by the question, whether they be good or bad or indifferent? Might be fear, timidity, anxiety, anger, happiness. So here's the question. What do you experience when someone of significance asks, where are you? So I'm going to give you a minute or two. I think we're going to play Jeopardy music. And you can just kind of sit with that. I would encourage you not to write paragraphs, just words. You might want to draw a picture. What does it? What do you experience when someone of significance asks you, where are you? Just take a minute or two with that, and then we'll get going. come back and keep going. Thank <music> you. Think of Mr. Rogers when he go on field trips. I love that. That was good. I think that's Manuel playing, actually. So God's response after sin enters the picture was to ask a question. God's response after sin enters the picture was to ask a question, where are you? As if he didn't know where they were. Of course he knew where they were. Here's what I think is happening here. He's trying to draw them out. He wanted them to come out from hiding. Where are you? Come to me. No need to hide. Let's deal with this. Think about it. These two, Adam and Eve, have single handedly ruined God's world and set in motion unimaginable destruction and discord and pain that will be experienced by every single human being who ever lives. It would be fairly understandable if God were just a tad bit upset by these events. And it would be fairly understandable if He were to give them some sort of time out, which He does, or grounded them from their cell phones or something of the sort. But verse nine says, the Lord called to the man, where are you? And again, we gotta let this speak on its own and do our best to clear away the predispositions we bring to this. Where are you? God wasn't screaming. He wasn't ranting. If he wanted to really grind them up into a shameful powder, there were other words to use for sure. He's calling Adam. He's seeking Adam. He's pursuing Adam, who for the first time is hiding from God. So let's talk about this for a minute, this whole idea of shame and hiding. They hear the familiar sound, we're told, of God in the garden, and they run and they hide in the trees. For the first time ever, they run and they hide from God. And for the first time ever, they cover their nakedness and no longer see all of each other. I mean, there's a whole bunch going on here. There's a whole lot wrapped up in the first half of verse 7 where it says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. Do you know what this is, among other things? This is the very first experience of shame. And it comes right on the heels of sin. And it absolutely changes their relationship with God and it changes their relationship with one another. Shame is this pervasive sense of being wrong. It's way more than just doing wrong. It's this pervasive sense of being wrong, being bad, flawed to the core and irreparable. Shame sends them running and hiding from God in the trees and shame gets them to cover themselves. And we just have to see this. Shame and hiding appear right after sin happens. The impulse to hide and cover up so neither God or others will see our sins, see our imperfections, see our brokenness. This is at the core of the breaking of shalom. This happens right after sin happens. People running and hiding from God and from each other. I don't want to get too graphic, but this is too obvious to leave alone. It is extremely significant that the shame they experience is felt in their reproductive organs. They experience the shame in their bodies and in particular in their sexuality. Verse 7, then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized They were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Think about this. They didn't cover up an elbow. They didn't cover a foot. They didn't say, oh boy, I better find a sock. They covered up their sexual organs. Think about it. Prior to sin, there was no such thing as, quote, private parts. For there was nothing private about those parts. The goodness and the shalom of God's world kept everything open and honest and authentic. But the minute, the second sin enters, the Bible says their eyes were opened and they realized they were naked. Sin brings self-consciousness. How do I stack up? Where am I in the pecking order here? Do I measure up? And this is only a few feet away from shame. And it is just eerie to me how this ancient biblical story continues to play out in today's real life world. One example, obviously, is marriage. The biblical idea of marriage before the fall is that the two would become one flesh. Genesis chapter 2. But the challenge of marriage after the fall so very often is whether or not the two possess sufficient vulnerability To actually become one. Prior to the fall, they were naked and unashamed. After the fall, whether naked or clothed, they're full of shame. And so this idea of two becoming one just got a lot more difficult. The words and values that are rattling in my mind around this are vulnerability and authenticity, openness and honesty in relationship with God and in relationship with each other and this is the constant challenge in a post fall world. This story introduces, you see, the powers of sin and evil and death into the cosmos. What did we talk about on Easter Sunday? Jesus has conquered the powers of sin and evil and death. Well, this story is where the powers of sin and evil and death get introduced into the cosmos. This was the ugly beginning, and shame and hiding are manifestations of the powers of sin and evil and death. After sin comes, shame arrives. Then distance replaces intimacy Hiding replaces openness and fear replaces freedom. Relationship with God is fractured and relationships with others is fractured. And it is good for us right at this moment to think of our own close relationships, our own family, spouse, parent to child, child to parent, brother to sister relationships and the ways we hide, the ways we cover ourselves, from the other. The way emotional immaturity establishes the culture of that relationship and hinders the potential of that relationship. See, this is life 101 stuff. This is going on all the time. Shame and hiding, feeling incomplete, feeling inadequate, thinking we're not good enough. So what do we do? We cover up. We hide. Some of us hide by literally trying to blend into the walls and hope no one sees us. Some of us hide by trying to be the center of attention so everybody sees us. Some of us hide by trying to get really small. Some of us hide by trying to get really big. Some of us hide by being quiet. Some of us hide by being loud. Shame and fear and hiding and cover-up distorts relationship, whether with God or with each other. So lastly, this idea of an invitation to authenticity and an invitation to healing. We've talked about these things a lot over the years. This idea of shame, this idea of authenticity, this idea of rediscovering openness, the freedom to be with one another in our brokenness and in our imperfections, the, the learning how to deny the instinct that says set forth a good face, project a good image, Make that other think that you're something you're not. We've talked ad nauseum about confronting that because that is life in a post-fall world. And I'm not so silly to think that we can return to Eden, as it were, but I do believe part of life in God's kingdom and part of the restoration of shalom is to gradually learn how to live not in the trees, but to come out of hiding with one another and with God. And one of the reasons we talk about this so much is because of my own experience and my own journey with shame. I'm projecting this onto you out of my own life. Shame was something that I brought out of my past in various ways, it's been something. That has been very close to my life for a long time. It's been something that has gotten between Julie and I many times. And it's contaminated our relationship in many ways. We just had a conversation yesterday or the day before about this very thing. And believe me, it wasn't me going over the sermon with her. This was a real-life issue that we were dealing with where she was telling me, she was talking to me about, you know what, you hear stuff this way. And what's it going to take to move past that and not believe what your brain is telling you I'm saying? See, that's the power of shame. And I want to clarify something before we go on. Adam and Eve sinned, just like we do. And guilt over that sin, healthy guilt, is good. Repentance is needed. I mean, this is not like, oh, just forget all that. Don't forget all that. Guilt over it is good. And repentance is needed. I mean, these two permanently trashed the universe. I mean, that's a pretty big deal. They might want to own that. But the point is that shame is what drives us into the trees. Shame is what drives us undercover. Shame is what compels us to hide. And that is part of the curse now running rampant in this world. And Jesus has something to say to this. He seeks them in the trees. Where are you? He's inviting them to come out. Yeah, I know, you trashed the universe. I know, you messed up big time. I know, you blew it. Come out. Come to me, come into the light, let's deal with it. What do they say? They answer, we heard you and we were naked, so we ran away. Really, is that why you ran away? I mean, that's sort of true, but it's not really true. They disobeyed. So they ran and hid. But you know this, in a post-fallen world, part of the cover-up is to shade the truth so that it doesn't sound as bad as it actually is. But again, notice, God is the pursuer here. Where are you? God is coming to them. He is summoning them. The word called, God called to Adam, is a word of summoning. Hey, come here. If he wanted to scream at him, there are plenty of other Hebrew words he could have used. Come out of the trees. He wants them to come into His light where His love and grace can address their sin and shame and brokenness and restoration can begin. And I'm Absolutely fascinated by this. This is this big picture window into the heart of God. Sin happens, chaos is unleashed, and God immediately gets busy with restoration. And if we were to read just a few more verses in Genesis chapter 3, we would come across this most famous phrase where God says to the serpent, there's going to come someone down the line, and you're going to strike his heel, crucifixion, and he's going to crush your head resurrection where are you we might hear the question as an accusation but god is inviting us out of the hiding and out of the cover-up so this whole thing in this story is about being authentic with god being real with god and being real with other people and i would say especially or at least as a starting point being real with those who are closest to us because the ones we hide from the most tend to be the ones that are closest to us. It's about being real. It's about being known. It's about really being known. No hiding. No cover-up. And in that vulnerability and in that authenticity, allowing God's Spirit to restore our relationship With him and with each other. The resurrection of Jesus Christ was God's proclamation to the powers of sin and evil and death that they were no match for him. The resurrection was God's return to reign as king over the world and over anyone who was willing to surrender to him as king to rule over the particulars of our lives and relationships and challenges and pain and to change and transform us from the inside out and transform our shame. And this is where this question, where are you, and this series we're in intersects with Eastertide and the celebration of Jesus' return from the dead. The risen King has power over sin and evil and death. So anything, and I mean anything, with even the faintest Scent of sin or evil or death can be transformed by the power of the risen Jesus at work in us through His Holy Spirit. The shame, in other words... Coursing in our blood and bodies and brains and bones that we've carried for so long and for so long has dictated how we think and how we hear and dictated our default responses and decisions and choices. The shame that has caused us to hide and cover ourselves from God and each other can be broken because Jesus rose from the dead. The shame can be transformed. The power of the shame is not the ultimate power. Right to that source of shame, and only you know what it is, right to that source of shame, I quote from the song we sang earlier, the king is here. And this is where the rubber really hits the road. The king is here. The king is risen. The power of sin and death and evil have been defeated. This is the gospel. This is the good news. The real question is, will we accept Jesus as our king and invite him to reign over our shame? Will we invite the king into our hiding? Will we invite the king into the specific emotional immaturity we manifest? Will we invite him to unleash his power in those places and bring forth something new in us? You see this? This is right at the intersection. Jesus is king. Jesus is resurrected. We hide. Shame devours us. And the big question is, does that thing last Sunday have anything to say or more importantly to do with this thing this Sunday? I want to say this as clearly as possible. This is what the church should be in today's culture. This is what we want Oak Hills to be in today's culture. A place and a people, more importantly, where the broken and the shameful and the lost and the guilty and the crushed and the sinful can find hope and grace and love and move toward healing. But here's the thing. If we, as a person, if I, if you, are hiding in shame and covering up, if we are stuck in the same old emotional immaturities year after year, then we really don't have much to offer this hurting world. Because Jesus is risen from the dead and he's got power over sin and evil and death. But in our case, we still live out of our emotional immaturity because the resurrected Jesus has not come down into that detail and transformed us. See, the resurrected Jesus... Wants to meet us at the particular point of our shame and fear, and through His Spirit do His transforming work. Transforming work doesn't happen like that; takes time. We get all that, but we have to answer His question, and His question is, "Where are you? Will you come forth? Will we step into the light?" Psalm fifty-one, seventeen. As I finish, my sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. And here's the thing. In order to go anywhere with this, we need each other. This is why the church matters so much on this particular point. We're absolutely silly if we think we've been living our lives hiding, we've been living our lives covering up, and all of a sudden we're going to snap out of it someday and go, I'm going to stop doing that. We need the community of faith to help us move out of the cover and move out of hiding and move into the light of God's love and God's grace. This is the value of community we talk about a lot and that hangs on the wall out there is one of our four important words. And here's the thing about these gatherings in here. The values we talk about in here, things like authenticity and dealing with shame and community and being open and honest with each other, whatever the values are, here's what happens to those values. Those values fall away by the time we hit that door or by the time we put the car in park unless there's somewhere outside of here where we can continue to process these things. There have to be places where these kinds of things can continue to be talked about. So Lorraine's going to come up here in a second and share a little bit about uh, some announcements, and in particular about these fire pits that we're going to try to get going during this series. We're going to deal with these questions, in particular today, where are you? And then we'll have different ones going on throughout the series. But these fire pits are not so much about what's the question that we're trying to answer. These fire pits are about here's the question that opens up a topic, and we're going to gather in relationships desiring God's transforming power, and we're going to walk together into these things. Come out of hiding together and lay down the disguise. So Lorraine, are you here? Oh, there you are. Good. (laughs) Where are you?
0: That was funny. It was like a can't-see-the-forest-for-the-trees thing. Uh, yes, as Mike mentioned, we wanted to have an opportunity for um, for you to be able to gather and ha- continue the conversation, continue the dialogue around these questions that are posed each week, um, today being God asking, where are you? So you will see in the back of the auditorium today, there's 14 different gatherings uh, for you to choose from, to be a part of. And they start calendar-wise with the table on the left. So this week we have three different opportunities that you can uh, be a part of. The first one starts tonight. So you can go in the back, uh, take a look at those. They extend throughout the month, and there will be different questions that we look at each week. Uh, And then if you want to be a part of a group that might continue over several weeks, you'll see some of those on the far right. Uh, we have a couple of hosts that are going to host more than one. So if you wanted to continue to go to a few with a particular host, you can do that. Also, with each clipboard, you'll see a little piece of paper you can take with you if you sign up for a group, which will remind you what you signed up for, the date, the address, all of those things. Um, and the last thing I want to mention that you'll see is that the spots for the 9 o'clock folks are limited to, I think, 6, um, because we want to leave a few slots for the 11 o'clock folks as well. So uh, take a look after the service. Go back there. We'd love to see these groups get uh, filled up. You can go to more than one. And um, I look forward to hearing about the great conversation that happens at those groups. Um. Also, you heard that the journals uh, are are gone, which yay for all the great response. We are going to place an order for more of those. We hope to have them next Sunday. Um, If you have your own journal you want to bring as well, we encourage you to do that. And you can also journal in our church app. So that's another place that you can do that. If you did grab a journal today, we want to remind you, you can pay for those. They're $5 on your way out today at the Welcome Center. Uh, you can pay for the journals that you grabbed today in the back. So uh, that's also the last announcement that I want to mention has to do with our Brazil trip, which is coming up. Uh, short-term missions are an important part of what we do. We believe that they matter, and they're an important part of our own formation and growth, as well as the friendships and relationships that we build in all these other places with our ministry partners. And our Brazil trip is coming up in August. So if you are thinking about being a part of that one and doing ministry in the favelas, the slums of Sao Paulo, Brazil, with a team, your applications are due for that on May 15th, and you can pick up more information about that out in the lobby on your way out. And with that, I want to invite you to stand and receive this benediction. As you go, may you revel in the goodness of our great God who sees you and loves you deeply. The peace of Christ be with you all. Great. Thank you so much for coming. want to remind you there's food in the back. And if you're visiting with us today, we'd love a chance to meet you up front here or at our Welcome Center. Thanks for coming.